Ukraine's interior minister is among at least 18 people killed in a helicopter crash in the suburbs of Kyiv. Three children are also among the dead. It's Wednesday, January 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a failed Republican candidate is being charged in connection with a string of shootings in New Mexico. Authorities say he was targeting Democratic officials. It is believed that he is uh, the mastermind that was uh, behind this and that was organizing this. Also this hour, a new study gives insight into viral co-infections among children. And winters in New England are getting warmer and we're getting more rain than snow. That means limited work for local snowplow drivers. I'm really still racking my mind about what else can I do to obviously keep my employees employed. A chance of showers this morning with temperatures around 50 degrees. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Ukrainian officials say at least 15 people have been killed in a helicopter crash in a suburb of the capital, Kyiv. Ukraine's interior minister is among the dead. The crash happened near a school, and at least three children have been killed. The Pentagon's top general has met his Ukrainian counterpart for the first time. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports this occurred along the border of Poland and Ukraine. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, met for a couple of hours with Ukraine's chief military officer, General Valery Zaluzhny. They met at an undisclosed location in southeastern Poland along its border with Ukraine. The two had spoken frequently about the war and Ukraine's military needs over the past year, but had never met in person. The meeting comes amid Ukraine's pleas for heavy artillery from several nations as Russia's war with Ukraine nears the one-year mark. The scope of training provided for Ukrainian forces has grown significantly, with U.S. soldiers in Germany now preparing a Ukrainian battalion to use U.S.-made weapons. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. The Treasury Department says the U.S. government will reach the limit of its borrowing authority tomorrow. It cannot borrow any more money to settle bills that it has already incurred. That is, unless Congress acts to raise the debt ceiling. In the meantime, the Treasury can move some money around to temporarily cover the shortfall. Washington Democratic Senator Patty Murray chairs the Senate Appropriations Committee. She says Congress has always worked to lift the debt ceiling because failing to do so would be catastrophic. Consequences for the country are a major economic crash. No one wants to be responsible for that. But a vocal group of the new Republican majority in the House says it will not raise the debt ceiling unless Congress agrees to major government spending cuts. A huge winter storm is barreling across the central United States. Winter storm advisories and warnings are up from Utah to Wisconsin. Some areas in Colorado and Nebraska could get up to a foot of snow. The National Weather Service is warning parts of the south will get thunderstorms, and forecasters say these could trigger flash flooding. North Carolina authorities are investigating an apparent shooting at a power substation. That's the second in the state in less than two months. From member station WFDD, April Leslie has more. Officials say the incident took place around 3 a.m. Tuesday at Power Company Energy United's Pleasant Hill substation in Randolph County, about 25 miles south of Greensboro. In a press release, Energy United said workers were able to repair the damage quickly and no outages were reported. State and federal agencies, including the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, are investigating. An attack on two substations in Moore County, North Carolina, left 45,000 customers without power in December. That incident is also under investigation. For NPR News, I'm April Leslie in Winston-Salem.
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The leader of a hate group that's active in New England is facing civil charges. Prosecutors say he organized the display of a racist banner over a highway overpass in Portsmouth. Todd Bookman reports. Last July, authorities say approximately 12 members of the hate group NSC-131 hung banners with the words, Keep New England White, off of a public bridge. Police confronted the group, who were wearing masks, which then dispersed. Now the state's attorney general's office says it's filing a complaint in Superior Court alleging that the group, Christopher Hood, its leader, as well as another identified member, violated New Hampshire's civil rights statute. Mark Newport, Portsmouth's chief, said the case was a priority. To say that hate, intimidation and divisiveness are simply not part of the fabric of this great city of Portsmouth. They are just not our values. The civil charges come with possible fines. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. The national shortage of infant and children's pain medicines is affecting local hospitals. Doctors say there's less Tylenol and Motrin on the shelves because of a surge in respiratory illnesses for the last few months. Boston Children's Hospital is temporarily changing the way it sources cold medicine. WBWARS' Walter Wattman reports. Boston Children's has felt squeezed by the shortage of children's acetaminophen and ibuprofen. We have, but we've been able to squeak by. That's Shannon Manzi, the Director of Safety and Quality at the Department of Pharmacy. She says her hospital can't buy the usual individual doses, but has made up for it by purchasing in bulk. Manzi recommends parents check local corner stores and pharmacies for cold medicine. Sometimes it's the smaller um, stores that actually still have the supplies of these. And so we we suggest that you check everywhere that might actually have this. Mansi says she is starting to see supplies increase as respiratory illness rates drop. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Three Massachusetts motels will collectively pay out tens of thousands of dollars to settle allegations they violated labor laws. The businesses include Worcester City Motel in Shrewsbury and two red roof inns, one in Sutton and one in Woburn. The state AG's office says the motels did not offer employees paid sick leave and failed to pay workers on time. An offshore wind company on Cape Cod is working with an artificial intelligence company to protect the area's right whales. Boat strikes are one of the main causes of death for endangered North Atlantic right whales. Charles River Analytics is creating technology that detects the whales and other marine animals from far away. Developers tell the Cape Cod Times the system uses image detection from cameras mounted on ships. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, an epic journey from slavery to freedom by Ilyan Wu, the true story of an enslaved couple's daring escape, available now. The Bruins are back on the road tonight. They'll skate with the Islanders in New York at 7.30. No game for the Celtics tonight. The team is preparing to face off against the Golden State Warriors. That's tomorrow night at the Garden. In your forecast, a slight chance of showers this morning between about 9 and 11. Otherwise, mostly cloudy skies and a bit of a breeze. The high temperature will be around 50. Tonight, skies clear and temperatures drop to a low near freezing. Tomorrow, we start off sunny, then clouds move in, bringing a chance of rain in the afternoon. We'll have a high around 42. Right now, it's 43 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Police say a man who lost an election lost again when he plotted against the rival party. Solomon Pena ran for state legislature in New Mexico. The Republican refused to accept his overwhelming defeat, and according to police, he then paid people to open fire on the homes of Democrats. He's expected in court today. Our colleague Alice Fordham is with member station KUNM and is on the line from Santa Fe. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are the charges against this man? Well, they're numerous. He's charged with multiple counts of shooting at home, shooting from a car, conspiracy, firearms offenses. All of them are related to four incidents in recent weeks where two Democratic county commissioners and two legislators in Albuquerque had their homes shot at. In at least one case, the bullets passed through the walls of a home. And Pena visited at least one of the county commissioners uninvited previously with documents falsely claiming the election he lost was fraudulent. Mm. No one was injured in these attacks, but of course they were frightening, not just for those targeted, but for other elected officials. Police say they have lots of evidence that Pena gave money and firearms to four men to carry out these attacks and personally rode along for at least one of them. Um, This election that he was upset about was not exactly a a barn burner, as they say. He's a Republican, ran in a heavily Democratic district, lost to an incumbent by 48 points, but made this claim that the system was rigged. Um, Is this a widespread belief at this point in 2023 in New Mexico? Yeah, there are a lot of people in New Mexico, there are activists who believe that elections aren't conducted correctly. One prominent couple, David and Erin Clements, who travel the state and beyond, giving presentations falsely saying that Dominion voting machines are not to be trusted. They have a big following. And a former county commissioner from the south of the state, Coy Griffin, was convicted of trespassing after he participated in the events of January 6th. But if these allegations about Solomon Pena turn out to be true, it'll be an intersection of violence violent crime and election skepticism in a way we haven't seen like this before. How are people responding who are in office right now? Well, he was arrested Monday, the day before the New Mexico legislature began its 2023 session. So that was top of everyone's minds yesterday. Democrats have a majority in the House and Senate here, and the governor called for gun control legislation, including a ban on assault weapons. On the Republican side, state leaders have condemned the violence, praised law and police, but didn't address the alleged political dimension to the attack so far. One person I spoke with was New Mexico's Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. Now, she's personally faced threats, which were investigated by the FBI, and she's highlighted the risk that local elected officials face, often while administering elections. She laid the blame for these alleged attacks on the widespread promotion of the lie that the 2020 election and other elections in the U.S. aren't valid. This is exactly the issue that I have been trying to sound the alarm on here in our state for the last couple of years. Based on what I've been through and what others are now going through, this is when political rhetoric and, frankly, lies are used to incite political violence. And I spoke with Senator Linda Lopez, whose home was targeted, and she said that she was worried that people might not want to run for office if they thought the price would be putting their family and their neighborhood at risk. Mm. Reporter Alice Fordham with our member station KUNM. Thanks for your reporting. Thanks for having me. Among the lawmakers targeted in these shootings was Bernalillo County Commissioner Adrian Barboa, who's on the line from New Mexico. Welcome. Hello, thank you. What was your experience with Solomon Pena? 
Oh, man, you know, um, right after the, I was serving as chair of the commission last year, and so we saw the increase um, in, before and after the election of, you know, folks coming to tell us that the election was fraudulent yeah. and demanding that we um, don't certify it because the county commission's um, responsible. And, you know, he uh, had done that, but he also came to my home and to the home of other commissioners and, um, you know, it was pretty aggressive. Um, I didn't feel totally threatened at the time. I believe in public discourse and that I love that in New Mexico, our, our electeds, you can talk directly to our elected. So I listened sure. to him. Um, but yeah, to learn that, you know, on December 4th, I came home from buying Christmas lights and my house had shot up, been shot up. Whoa. Uh, so, so the first time he comes, he's just on your porch or something and you're just talking and he's complaining, but it's just a conversation. It's just a conversation. He sounds a little erratic to me, but I just listen. You know, he's coming as a constituent. And you said you came home later to discover your house had been shot up. Um, just lay it out here. How did you know that? Yeah, just not the same day, right? He came right after elections, um, before we certified the elections. And then on December 4th, is when I came home from shopping from Christmas lights and I had shots through my front door, through my house, through my living room, right where I had just hours before been playing with my grandbaby. Uh, had anybody been home at the time? No, thankfully nobody was home and nobody was physically hurt in any of these shootings. Now, needless to say, more than a month passed between your experience with the shooting and the arrest. Uh, over the last several weeks, did you think to yourself this shooting was in some way political? The entire time, as soon as it happened. I, I live in the home that I grew up in, that I got to raise my kids in. And I don't, you know, I knew that this had to do be because of my service. And that was my first thought. So it's, you know, that's the most tenuous part we had seen lately was election deniers. Well, let me ask a tricky question here. Uh, seems simple at first. And the question is, who do you blame? I mean, there's, there's the suspect. If he's guilty, of course, you would blame him. But do you also blame people who have propagated these falsehoods all across the country? I do. You know, some of our highest elected officials um, are still um, invoke violence through the words they use, through the actions and through the denial. And we as elected officials have a responsibility. People elect us, look to us to, um, to make decisions and look to our words. And yes, I do know that that impacts um, this action. And nobody can be responsible for that. His actions were his. But when our highest level of government are um, continue to make threats and violence and regular part of our public discourse that impacts our democracy and obviously our lives. Should somebody else be arrested for an act like this besides the people who pulled the trigger? I mean, I don't know about arrest, but I know there should be accountability. I think we have to think in the larger public discourse and stop polarizing these issues around gun violence and, um, you know, public safety. How do you feel now that Mr. Pena is in custody? There's a sense of relief. I think I'm still in and out of shock that this happened. Um, the trauma it's caused on my home and my family, um, even though we weren't physically hurt. And I just think about my neighbors, loved ones that go through this and, and violence all the time. I'm just thinking, you said there were shots through the door. Um, through my front door. I, I guess you must have fixed it by now. Can you still see where it was? Oh, yeah, you can still see when, you know, through my front door, I'm out my back sliding door. So we have 
things up to repair until we can replace that. But um, no, our, our, our home is still um, need of repair from the damage. Very briefly, how has the community responded to this? Well, they are, you know, our community comes together and I've gotten a lot of support. We've had a lot of, um, you know, good support from law enforcement, but people are devastated and worried. Today, yesterday started our legislature. So um, I think there's also just a great sense of relief that this person's been caught. Would you tell other people to run for office, given your experience? Definitely. This impacts. We need representation. And if we are um, intimidated by this, then that decreases the representation we have in our elected officials. Bernalillo County Commissioner Adrian Barboa in New Mexico. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The Library of Congress has named a Cuban-American writer as its new national ambassador for young people's literature. Here's NPR's Julie Deppenbrock. Meg Medina is the first Latinx ambassador in the program's history. I'm a children's book author. I write picture books, middle grade and YA. Medina's middle grade novel, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears, won the prestigious Newbery Medal for Children's Literature in 2019. My books always center on three things. It's usually growing up, culture, and family, and how those three things intersect. You know, sometimes they're beautiful intersections, and sometimes they're really bumpy, right, as we're growing up. She takes over the ambassador role from young adult writer Jason Reynolds. Medina's focus is on Latinx stories in an industry where only a small percentage of children's books are written by Latinx authors. Medina says now, though, it feels like things are moving in a better direction. That's been one of the encouraging things of watching children's literature, the community sort of develop in recent years, that we're getting more varied stories that really match who's in the seats in in our schools right now. She says her responsibility in this two-year term with the Library of Congress is to help kids construct their reading lives. The power of reading is in its ability to help people sort of see themselves in the pages. Medina will engage with readers across the country with her platform, Cuéntame, which encourages book discussions beyond the classroom. Cuéntame is, so tell me. Tell me about books. Tell me about what's going on in your library. Tell me about what your favorite thing was. And talking to kids and families about how we use books to connect. Medina says her focus is around the celebration of story. And I want to make sure that families remember that their own story matters as well. So not only reading books, but sharing family stories and family histories has to be important. Also, it's another way for us to connect with kids around their own story. The Library of Congress inaugurates Medina as the newest ambassador for young people's literature on January 24th. Julie Deppenbrock, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we visit a seed bank in rural Lebanon that's helping farmers worldwide adjust their crops to deal with climate change. It's 719. 
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. I'm Scott Tong. In a new book, author and travel writer Pico Iyer goes out looking for paradise. But he realizes, as a tourist, he might be messing with the world's spiritual places. Well, it may be paradise for me for two weeks, but it probably isn't for the locals. And if it really were paradise, what would it have to gain for me? I, I would probably be the serpent in the garden. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A slight chance of showers this morning, then overcast with a high in the low 50s. It'll also be a bit windy. Tonight's skies clear a bit and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy with a high in the low 40s and a chance of rain in the late afternoon. There's a good chance of some snow on Friday. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Researchers have spent years in Lebanon and Syria collecting seeds from crops and wild plants from the Middle East and other parts of the world to preserve in a seed vault. Some of these plants were developed thousands of years ago during the early days of agriculture, and now they're helping farmers all over the world grow food in a changing climate. NPR's Ruth Sherlock traveled to Lebanon's agricultural region to see how it all works. I meet Mariana Yazbek at a low building with orange roof tiles surrounded by fields of grains in Lebanon's remote Bekaa Valley. Let me show you the gym bag. Not everyone gets to go to the gym. Ooh, thank you. Yes. She shows me how her team protects the samples they keep in this seed bank. They are stored at specific conditions of temperature and relative humidity and we conserve them here. Like this, you have the seeds here. The cold store is like a large walk-in fridge. It's minus four degrees Fahrenheit, and inside there are rows and rows of heavy sliding metal racks filled with seeds in sealed foil bags. What uh, variety of seed is this? This is uh, a legume, it's it's fava bean. This gene bank stores up to 120,000 varieties of legumes, barley, wheat, and other seeds that have been gathered from the mountains and plains of Lebanon, Syria, Iran, and even further afield in West Asia, North Africa, and other parts of the world. Do you have a sense of how many years of work is in this? (laughs) So uh, literally, it's like a little bit more than 40 years of collecting seeds, but it definitely goes back to thousands of years if we're talking about local varieties because we're conserving here 
varieties that have been developed and maintained by farmers, which is since the beginning of agriculture, 10 to 12,000 years ago. This region is part of the fertile crescent where agriculture began. Some wild species have survived here millions of years, which means their seeds are tough and nutrient-rich and worth saving for the genes that can be pulled from them. This gene bank belongs to the International Centre for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas, or ICADA. The organisation, funded by governments and international groups, began in Lebanon and now works in over a dozen countries. But Lebanon remains an important hub. It's one of the biggest gene banks in the world, with a very unique collection. Yazbek's team's focus is conserving seeds for wild varieties of crops and plants, many of which are essential to the human diet. She calls it an insurance policy for humanity. These centres save seeds in case of disasters like nuclear war or other catastrophic events that wipe out the wild species of the plants. But keeping these seeds safe has not always been easy. In the Lebanese civil war in the 1980s, the organisation opened offices in Syria. And then in 2012, after the start of Syria's civil war, they had to move back across the border to Lebanon. Some scientists took huge personal risks to salvage decades of work. Usually in the war, you have to be very careful in, in moving here and there. Rafat Azzo is a barley breeder with Ikada. In the chaos of the Syrian conflict, some of Ikada's equipment was stolen and researchers were kidnapped and even shot at. Still, Azzo tells me how he refused to leave Syria without his varieties of barley. We shifted hundreds of boxes. Hundreds? Yeah, hundreds. Not 100, hundreds of boxes to Lebanon. And you did it crossing front lines. It wasn't a simple journey, I imagine. Yes, yes, it wasn't a simple, yeah, yeah. Ikada's work has already helped countries with similarly hot, dry climates. They developed a variety of chickpea that allowed farmers to plant year-round in Asia. Other seeds have helped in hot climates in Africa. Now, though, Ikada's work is also of interest to wealthier nations that are feeling the effects of climate change. So we have now, with our collaboration with France and Spain, Portugal, uh, Danimark, uh, Switzerland, uh, UK, Italy. Fouad Malouf, a legume breeder, tells me he's working with more than 30 countries in Europe now. As temperatures rise, these countries have come to Ikada for seeds that can adapt and even counter global warming, like lentils and fava beans. These crops uh, also play an important role in uh, having a more sustainable climate change because it controls carbon dioxide emissions. It captures. It captures, yes. Malouf says these crops capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and release nitrogen into the soil. That means the farmers have to use less chemical fertilizer. And, he says, legumes take very little water to grow. So you are saving the environment. And the second way, you save water. The impact of Ikada's work is even reaching the United States. I'm Dila Tavaraja, and I am a professor here at the Clemson University, South Carolina. Dil Tavaraja has worked with Ikada for over a decade, exploring ways to improve the nutritional content of legumes, lentils, peas, chickpeas. One discovery could even help tackle obesity. She says the genes from these seeds are helping U.S. agriculture adapt to climate change. So when you grow in a stressful environment like high temperature, or low rainfall, or in a winter conditions, these raffinose 
oligosaccharides and the sugar alcohols act as the humectants and they save the plant from freezing or um, save the plant from drying out. The work has allowed new crops to be introduced around the US that are more suited to extreme weather. So now Florida, Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, all these places, they are introducing legumes into their crop rotation. One seed saved by Acada has been used to grow wheat in the US that's resistant to the Hessian fly, a pest that's spreading in warmer temperatures. With millions of years of evolution captured in the DNA of the seeds stored in the vault in Lebanon, these discoveries that help us adapt to climate change may just be the beginning. Ruth Sherlock, MPR News, Beirut. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, Harvard is being criticized for backing out of a fellowship offer to Kenneth Roth, a former head of Human Rights Watch. It's 729. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Daring on Monday, January 30th at City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. Tickets are at WBOR.org slash events. Malcolm Jamal Warner is well known for his TV roles, including the iconic Theo Huxtable. But he's also a musician whose latest spoken word album is up for a Grammy. I've learned to discern who cannot accept all of me. I read the room before I speak because I find that folks flee from honesty like we retreat from love. Warner on his career in the spotlight and behind the mic on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. It's unclear what brought down a helicopter today in a suburb of Ukraine's capital. At least 15 people were killed, including the country's interior minister and a top deputy. The helicopter went down near a school, triggering a fire. Ukraine's national police chief says children are among the dead. The BBC's James Waterhouse is at the scene. It's a picture of devastation. The human trauma is plain to see. And then there is the symbolic damage to Ukraine, with one of the dead being the interior minister, Denis Monastirsky. It is a misty day, but we don't know the cause yet. There was no fighting reported today in and around Kyiv between Ukrainian and Russian forces. The crash comes days after a Russian airstrike on an apartment building in Dnipro killed at least 45 people. Mexico's one-time top security official is on trial in New York on charges of helping the Sinaloa drug cartel to traffic drugs into the U.S. Gennaro Garcia Luna is also accused of helping to protect cartel members from being captured. Prosecutors say Garcia Luna has also taken millions of dollars worth of bribes. A nun who died in southern France weeks before her 119th birthday was believed to be the oldest person in the world. Lucille Randon was known as Sister Andre. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi.
The New England Commission on Higher Education says it will withdraw accreditation from Bay State College. It blames a lack of institutional resources at the for-profit school. At the school's Back Bay campus, staff tell stories of dysfunction and a lack of transparency. WBUR's Max Larkin has more. As a contract administrator at Bay State College, Ray Gillette also taught business ethics, something he says was in short supply in the college's leadership. He says students and staff were aware that the college was facing financial struggles, but that top administrators downplayed them. They had a meeting when a couple of people said, so we've got two to three years to work through this? And the indication was, yeah, yeah, we're going to be okay. You know, that's the sad part is the accreditors, I believe they waited too long on this one. The college is appealing the decision to revoke its accreditation. If unsuccessful, the step would become official in August, giving students seven months to graduate or transfer out. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. A new investigation chronicles misconduct claims against two teachers at a Rhode Island school district. Documents obtained by the Boston Globe show a teacher at Davisville Middle School in North Kingston will resign following allegations of misconduct. Students there claim he yelled at them. They also say he was flirtatious with girls in his classes. Another teacher at North Kingston High School is accused of making unwelcome physical contact with girls in a school weight room. Records show he returned to work yesterday after undergoing training on personal boundaries. A Democrat from Pepperell will be sworn into the Massachusetts House today. Margaret Scarsdale was declared the winner of a razor-thin race by a special legislative committee yesterday. The outcome of the race was decided by just seven votes. Scarsdale's Republican opponent claimed voting irregularities gave her an edge. But the committee members say those claims lacked evidence. Another House race for a seat in the state's second Essex district remains unresolved. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins will skate in New York tonight against the Islanders. The team is looking for their third straight win. They hit the ice at 7.30. Cloudy with a high of 51 today. There's a slight chance of showers this morning, and it'll probably be windy all day. Clearing a bit tonight as we fall to a low around 33. Tomorrow, cloudy again and cooler with a high of only 42. A chance of rain in the afternoon. Right now, it's 43 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Kenneth Roth was executive director of Human Rights Watch for almost three decades. His job called for him to document human rights violations around the world. When he left that job last year, he says he received a call from the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And they wanted to know what I'd like to come there as a senior fellow to work on a book that I'm writing. And we talked about it back and forth. And within a month or so, I agreed that 
That would be a nice thing to do. Then something went wrong. Ross says he lost the fellowship because he criticized human rights violations in Israel. Leila Fadel spoke with Roth about what happened. We still needed the dean of the Kennedy School to sign off on this, but we thought it would be a mere formality. And indeed, I was so you know certain that I was going to be coming that I actually reached out to the dean to say, look, I'm going to be there in September. Let's get to know each other. And we arranged a Zoom conversation in July and chatted for half an hour. And it was a perfectly pleasant conversation until right at the end, he asked this weird question. He said, do you have any enemies? Hmm. Now, I mean, that's odd because I have tons of enemies. Yeah. Your whole job is to criticize very powerful states. Precisely. And, and they don't like that. So, you know, I explained that both the Chinese government and the Russian government had personally sanctioned me, um, that the Saudi government doesn't like me, the Rwandan government doesn't like me. But, you know, I had an inkling what he was driving at. So I said, and also the Israeli government doesn't like me. And that turned out to be the kiss of death hmm. because... Two weeks later, the car center called me up and and sheepishly had to admit that the dean had vetoed my fellowship because of my criticism of Israel. Why did that happen and did it surprise you? It surprised me because I thought this is the Kennedy School. I mean, this is the place where domestic policy, foreign policy is taught. You get into all the big issues. And obviously, Israel is a, a major policy issue. And I thought, being the Kennedy School, being Harvard, that they would allow a broad array of views. So I was pretty shocked that the dean would penalize me because of my commentary on Israel. Have you run into pushback like this before over your criticism of human rights issues in Israel? Well, at at Human Rights Watch, you know, I regularly receive pushback because of what we said about this or that government. Mm -hmm. And... I would say that Israel was at the top of the list. And it was because, you know, many progressive donors also were supporters of Israel. And so I was challenged on this. But I got used to the idea that, you know, it was fair for people to ask me to be fair and and fact-based on Israel. And I accepted that as just normal. But no one would ever say, you've got to exempt Israel from your scrutiny. You can't criticize Israel. You know, that would be a violation of the standards that Human Rights Watch abides by, where we, you know, apply international human rights law even-handedly to some hundred countries around the world. Evidently, in this case, and here we just don't know exactly what happened, but apparently what they objected to in my case was that I'm not partial. I'm an impartial critic of Israeli repression. And that seems to have been the stigma that the Israeli government didn't like, that there's, its supporters didn't like, and that was why my fellowship was vetoed. What does this say about freedom of academic expression on campus? This is an Ivy League campus in the United States. This would suggest that Harvard is allowing donors to compromise intellectual independence hmm. at the university. And I understand how, you know, any institution needs funds, but if there is a university any place in the world that could resist this kind of donor pressure, it's Harvard. And so this is, you know, about far more than just my fellowship. I mean, I've been the director of Human Rights Watch for 30 years. This is not going to impede my future. But what I worry about are younger academics who take from this the lesson that if you dare to criticize Israel, your career could be compromised. And so, you know, I've been appealing to the president 
of Harvard. I'm Lawrence Beckow to clarify where does Harvard stand on this? And this is an opportunity to say that Harvard will not allow donors to compromise academic freedom. Kenneth Roth, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Now, we reached out to Harvard for comment, and Kennedy School Media Relations Director James Smith said the decision not to offer Roth a fellowship was based on an evaluation of his potential contributions to the school. Smith also said the school does not engage with donors or funders in our deliberations or decisions related to fellowship appointments. In the small city of Skagway, Alaska, there's a unique bus service, but it's not for people. The passengers can be loud, but they're pretty well behaved. The Puppy Bus is run by a local dog walking and training service called Mo Mountain Mutts. Thank you for riding with Mo Mountain Mutts. Do you guys like a complimentary chicken liver with your bus ride? The Puppy Bus takes the dogs to spots for off-leash walks or hikes and even a swim. I never set out to be a dog walker. That's Mo Thompson, who runs the business with her husband, Lee. The dog walk started off as a favor for Mo's co-workers and eventually became a full-fledged business. It just kind of turned into like, all right, guys, I'm going through a lot of treats and a lot of poop bags. Can you guys like throw me some money? Woof. The Thompsons have captured many people's hearts. A TikTok video shows the dogs boarding the puppy bus, greeting their pals, and jumping into their assigned seats. This has been seen almost 55 million times. And some dogs have become fan favorites, like Jake. Somebody made a comment about, I bet you Jake buckles himself in. He gets on the bus, he says hi to his friends, he does a circle, and then he gets in his seat every morning. Then there's Amaru, who waits for the bus on his own. He's just laying in the snow, waiting for the bus, and you pull up and he starts wagging his tail and he gets on the bus and he's just covered in snow. One of many personalities, if that's the word for a dog, that keeps viewers hooked. There's so many different dogs and there's so many different breeds and ages. There's plenty of dogs on the bus that you can relate to. So people are like, oh, my dog's like Lola, or I'm like Carl. They identify themselves with the dog. The business has come a long way. Before the puppy bus, there was a van. And before the van, Mo corralled the pups on her bike. I've been known like in my community for a while, but not on the internet. That took the bus. The bus made her famous in the world of mass transit. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we preview the Sundance Film Festival, which opens two years after the pandemic prevented the celebration of new films from being in person. Listen on your smartphone, computer, or on the radio. You're listening to Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, how snowplow drivers are coping with warming New England winters. And in our next hour, most small businesses that receive Paycheck Protection Program loans during the COVID-19 pandemic have had their debt forgiven, but new data show the program was rampant with fraud. In your forecast, overcast, breezy, and near 50 today. There's a slight chance of showers later this morning. Mostly clear tonight with a low around freezing. Tomorrow, overcast again with a high only in the low 40s. There's a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Right now, it's 43 degrees in Boston at 743.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Now in business news, the co-chairman of Boston-based Bain Capital is retiring. Steve Paliuka was with the firm for nearly four decades. He'll stay on as an advisor and board member at some of Bain's portfolio companies. He'll also keep spending time courtside as co-owner of the Celtics. Cambridge-based Leap Therapeutics is set to buy a Pennsylvania-based maker of cancer drugs. It's buying Flame Biosciences in an all-stock deal. Leap hopes the purchase advances its work on a drug for certain types of cancer. Cambridge's historic underground nightclub Man Ray is reopening tonight after nearly two decades. The club first opened in 1983 but closed in 2005. It was known for its theme nights and as a space for art and creativity. Chris Ewan is the club's resident DJ and has been involved with Man Ray since the 80s. He says the club holds a special place in his heart. Man Ray was always a place where anybody who didn't feel like they fit everywhere else in the club land could go. You know, you could be trans or LGBTQ. You could just be a part of a subculture, any subculture, and find a home there and find people to connect with. The club will be open at its new location in Central Square Wednesdays through Saturdays. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments, As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skip. And I'm A. Martinez. New England winters are known for being cold and snowy, but climate change means that's shifting, and this winter is no exception. New Hampshire Public Radio's Mara Hoplamazian took a ride recently with someone feeling the impact from climate change, a snowplow driver. Harold Davis keeps his phone close by. In the summer, he's the guy you call to reseal your driveway, fill in cracks in the pavement, or paint stripes onto a parking lot. In the winter, he's the guy you call when snow starts to fall. When it storms, he's out all day. It's 20 stops. It's 56 driving miles. Typically, say, 10 10 minutes average a stop. It's going to take around six hours. Davis bought his plow and a used truck a few months ago. This is his first season with his own equipment. He spent about a decade working for other snow removal businesses when it gets too cold to do his usual work. He takes care of about 20 homes whenever it snows more than three inches. In December, the first storm came to Concord, New Hampshire's capital city where Davis lives. He went out with a tape measure. Oh, we're at an inch and a half. It's almost time to go out two inches. And then it was like three, and I'm like, you know, already had the truck cleaned off and started, of course. And it just felt really good when I dropped the plow for the first time. That's been the only storm this season big enough for him to plow his entire route. Davis charges per visit. If it snows a foot, he can make a few thousand dollars. He says it'll take about four snowstorms to see a return on his investment in the plow, and another five storms for the truck. But driving his usual route on this day, Davis sees only bare driveways. 
you know, rain and a snowstorm melts the snow and you can't plow a puddle. No one wants you to go plow a puddle, so. Puddles are increasingly common. Winter is the fastest warming season for most of the country. New Hampshire's state climatologist, Mary Stampone, says that means there are more days when it's not cold enough to snow. With the warmer temperatures comes a change in the type of precipitation where we have more precipitation falling as rain during the winter season. When snowstorms happen, they're getting stronger, says Astrid Caldas. She's a climate scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She says warmer air holds more moisture that can come down as rain or snow. A lot of people, when they have these huge snowstorms, they say, how can it be global warming? Look at all the snow. Well, that's exactly what's expected under global warming. New Hampshire's Department of Transportation says it's been kind of a relief to have less snow this season. They have lots of open positions, and they're not alone. States across the country have had trouble finding snowplow drivers. But as New Hampshire's winters get warmer, Davis says small snowplow businesses are struggling. I think it's already clear to people that you can't count on snowplowing. It's been clear for a few seasons now. Davis says he worries about climate change and losing the winters he loves. He says he's doing okay financially, but he's trying to figure out next steps for his business. I'm really still racking my mind about what else can I do to obviously keep my employees employed and to, you know, keep my family supported throughout the wintertime. For now, Davis plans to hold on to his plow despite the rain and pray for more snow to come. For NPR News, I'm Mara Hoplamazian in Concord, New Hampshire. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, hear how people in China are remembering loved ones who died unacknowledged during the latest COVID-19 surge. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone, computer, or just listen on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Hump Day. Happy Hump Day, Rupa. I actually kind of wish that vibe they were laying down there had continued under our conversation. I, I liked that groove. I know. I would love more music in general. But. That's right. Not bad for the middle of the week. So, okay, we are going to talk about a five-foot fake fish. Mm-hmm. On Radio Boston today, the look you're giving me tells me you already know. <laughs> oh, I do. That I to do. which I'm referring. So this is the sacred cod. We've heard of sacred cows, but the Massachusetts State House there is a sacred cod, which is a fish uh, that hangs in the chambers, but actually has an amazing history. Uh, you might have heard last week, uh, it, there, a replica of it was wrapped in an American flag and marched from the old state house to the Very new solemnly, state house. That's right, like. with fifes and drums on the 225th anniversary of the. Moving to the new state house. It's a fun history. It's an interesting history. It's a uniquely Massachusetts history. And WBUR senior state house reporter Steve Brown knows all of it. Yeah, you're going to have some fun. Steve Brown loves talking about this kind of stuff. Oh, it's fantastic. And he knows it all. And it's our history. So. 11 o'clock. Sounds like fun. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 751. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. A slight chance of rain this morning, otherwise cloudy, windy, and in the upper 40s. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston at 752. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have the story of a divided nation. Not divided as we know now, but divided between states that banned slavery and states that embraced it. In 1848, in the slave state of Georgia, a husband and wife decided to escape. It was 800 miles to Philadelphia in the free state of Pennsylvania. But Ellen and William Craft made a plan to travel by train and boat in disguise. The writer Ilyan Wu reconstructs their escape in her new book, Master, Slave, Husband, Wife. Ellen was the daughter of her first enslaver, and from him she had inherited a very light complexion. So she's actually the one who disguises herself as a master. She dons the outfit of a wealthy white male enslaver who is disabled and thus is all the more dependent on the services of her slave. And that world of the slave is performed by her husband, William. What was the disguise? All the accoutrements of gentlemanhood in this period. She has a double-story hat, as they call it. She has a man's shirt. She's made her own pants because she's very small, and she has a vest and a jacket. And then she has glasses that hide her eyes, and she has poultices that she wears on her face. I picture like an ace bandage kind of thing that she's wrapped around. So it's hiding both the lack of hair on her face that would give her away, and it's also hiding her feeling, especially with the eyes covered up as well. Because she would be terrified all the time. It must have been terrifying. They thought they could be captured at any time, but there were certain crises moments that really brought this out. And she gradually learned throughout the journey how to harness that fear and how to be the master that people want to see on the road. You put a map in the book here, which I'm looking at, and it's got a line showing their escape route, Mm -hmm. and it's basically all the states of the entire eastern seaboard from Georgia northward. (laughs) What was America like at that moment in 1848? It was an incredibly tumultuous time, as you know from your own research. There are all these revolutions going on. I mean, even beyond America, there are democratic revolts going on all over the world in Europe. And America is celebrating that, and America's borders are expanding with the end of the Mexican-American War. There's a transportation revolution going on with trains and steamboats and people moving at paces they couldn't have even imagined before. And with it, there's an information revolution. News is traveling incredibly fast. I mean, in some ways, it's very much like our era, where everything feels like it's changing so rapidly. And this is the world in which the crafts seize upon their own freedom. What was the most terrifying moment of their escape? 
I think I might even point to the very beginning. As soon as they get to the train station, they're in the train. William has found his place in the what's called a Negro car. Ellen has bought the tickets. They look outside and there's the cabinet maker from the shop where William works. And they learn later that he's had this strange intuition that something is off. And he comes and he actually checks the cars of the train and their hearts are beating and they don't know what's going to happen. And then when they think that's over, Ellen looks to her side and sitting there right next to her is a man who she served the night before, a close friend of her enslavers. I mean, it just, it couldn't have been a more terrifying start. This is a movie, isn't it? <laughs> it's very cinematic. That's, I, I actually thought about whenever I got stuck in trying to figure out how to tell the story, I sort of tried to picture where would the camera move and which camera people am I going to use in terms of the angles that I'll get into the story. I want to note one other thing about their story that you tell, and that is that after the end of slavery, after the end of the Civil War, mm -hmm. they chose to return to the South, to South Carolina and then to Georgia. Why did they do that? This is their continued journey as people who are challenging not only themselves and their community, but the nation to rise up. And what they do is they draw on their own experiences, having attended an agricultural and educational cooperative in England. And that's someplace where they might have just stayed happily ever after for good. They could have settled there and been safe. But instead, as soon as they are free by the nation's laws, they are starting to make other plans. And they come back to America, not to Boston again, where they might have had a much more comfortable life, but they go back to Georgia and they start the school. And there's an incredible testimony by this over a hundred year old woman who had been enslaved on the grounds where they opened their school. And she's remarking on just the unbelievable transformation and opportunity that she has on these same grounds where she experienced so much pain. What does this story mean to you now in 2023? You know, we are living in such divided times and people say again and again, you have to look back to the years before the Civil War to see America so divided. And for me personally, having worked on this story over the last many years, I've been continually inspired by each of the choices the crafts make. It starts, of course, with their journey in pursuing their own freedom, the way in which they continually challenge themselves. For me, that's been an ongoing inspiration. Can I ask one more question that's just occurring to me as I'm sitting here? We are talking in a moment when there's a lot of debate about how to teach slavery in schools. Mm -hmm. And one line of thinking is that teaching slavery in schools is going to make white kids feel bad. Mm -hmm. Should white people feel bad about this story you tell? I hope the story will be inspirational for people of all ages and all colors, all backgrounds. I mean, this is, this is an American story. America reaching for better, Americans reaching for better. And I would have to say too, I've been thinking a lot about this with the Martin Luther King Day. And my own journey with the story, I feel like in many ways began with my own childhood educational experiences at a school named for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. And the way the history was taught to me at that time, because I did learn a lot about slavery, I did learn a lot about what is, might now be called Black history, but which was just presented to me as, as history alongside so many other histories. I was exposed to so many different American histories and international histories, and it felt to me 
It felt to me like all of these things can and did coexist at once. I think the crafts show us what the true meaning of American freedom can be. Ilyan Wu is the author of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. Thanks so much. Thank you so very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A helicopter crash near a kindergarten outside Kyiv has killed Ukraine's interior minister and 17 others, including three children. It's Wednesday, January 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, new information shows the payment protection program that supported small businesses during the pandemic was rampant with fraud. What bothers me is the people that took money that should have known better. It should have been for people who really needed it. Also this hour, Boston's proposed move to an elected school committee has stalled. Some say Mayor Michelle Wu is quietly resisting the change. I don't think this is an issue that's just going to go away. And I think she will have to address the council and the public on it at some point. And international leaders are gathering at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, where they're taking a grim view of the global economy. Mostly cloudy, with temperatures reaching 50 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Ukraine's interior minister and a top deputy were among at least 16 people killed today in a helicopter crash outside the capital, Kyiv. NPR's Lauren Magaki reports the helicopter went down near a school, leaving a number of children dead as well. The crash happened in Brovery, an eastern suburb of Kyiv. Images from the scene show the fiery wreckage of a school building. Officials say that children were inside the school at the time of the crash and that many of them are now hospitalized with injuries. At least nine on board the helicopter were killed, including Denise Monasterski, the head of Ukraine's interior ministry. The office oversees law enforcement, the police force, National Guard, and state emergency services. And according to an official from the president's office, they were traveling to one of the country's hotspots. It is not yet known what caused the crash, but officials say there will be an investigation. Lauren Magaki, NPR News. Kiev. Authorities in New Mexico allege a man who lost his election for the state legislature last year is behind several shootings on the homes of some Democratic officials. Solomon Pena refused to accept his election loss last year. From member station KUNM, Alice Fordham tells us Pena now faces several charges in the shootings. No one was injured in these attacks, but of course they were frightening, not just for those targeted, but for other elected officials. Police say they have lots of evidence that Peña gave money and firearms to four men to carry out these attacks and personally rode along for at least one of them. Alice Fordham reporting. The U.S. Treasury Department says the U.S. will reach its debt ceiling tomorrow. That's the limit on how much money the federal government can borrow to pay bills already incurred. Congress needs to act to raise this. But some newly empowered Republicans in the House say they won't, unless they can force government spending cuts or get some other concessions. The Treasury Department says it can take some short-term measures to maintain financial stability. 
A new Congress means assignments for two Republican House members who were previously ousted from their committees. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been outspoken about putting the pair back to work. The House GOP Steering Committee, which handles assignments for its party, is recommending Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia join the Homeland Security Committee. That's according to her spokesperson. Greene, an ally to McCarthy in his fight to become Speaker, hasn't served on a committee since early 2021, when the House voted to strip her of assignments for incendiary comments ranging from conspiracy theories to anti-Semitic rhetoric. Later that year, Paul Gosar of Arizona was ousted from the Committee on Natural Resources. After he posted an anime-style video, Video depicting the killing of a character meant to be Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. A spokesperson for the committee says Gosar is now slated to return as a member. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. A Cambridge man is due in court next week on charges he randomly attacked two Asian-American women last year in Boston. Prosecutors say Alexander Ivanenko punched one woman in the face in Chinatown in April. They also accuse him of hitting another woman in downtown Crossing a few hours later. Ivanenko faces prosecution for civil rights violations and multiple counts of assault. The New Hampshire attorney general says a leader of a New England hate group violated the state's civil rights laws. Prosecutors say Christopher Hood organized the display of a racist banner over a highway overpass in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, last July. If found guilty, he could be fined as a result. Healthcare workers at Faulkner Hospital in Jamaica Plain will continue pay raise negotiations tomorrow. They staged a lunchtime walkout yesterday to protest their current wages. Faulkner's personal care attendants, or PCAs, earn $15.45 an hour. Hospital worker Stacy Welsh says workers at the hospital deserve to be treated better. That's insulting. We've been through the pandemic through everything. I've been through COVID two times. I've been here for 20 years and we cannot accept a dime raise. The PCAs have been asking for a raise since July. Faulkner Hospital says they're working to reach a fair agreement with workers. A new study in the journal Environmental Research finds high levels of toxic chemicals in fresh freshwater fish. The chemicals are called PFAS, or forever chemicals. As WBWAR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, they're man-made and have been linked to a variety of health concerns, including certain cancers. This study is bad news for communities that rely on subsistence fishing and recreational fishermen who cook up what they catch. Researchers tested freshwater fish from all over the continental U.S. The fish had average PFAS levels that are nearly 280 times what's typical for store-bought fish. Tasha Stoiber is one of the study authors and a scientist at the advocacy organization The Environmental Working Group. This is a consequence of many decades of an unregulated class of chemicals. Outside experts say the study points to the need for more government consumption advisories and for industrial polluters to be held responsible. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. 
The Bruins are hitting the road today. They'll take on the New York Islanders. The puck drops at 7.30. The Celtics are getting ready for tomorrow's home match against the Golden State Warriors. It'll be the first time the Warriors have been to the Garden since last year's NBA Finals. The team beat the Seas in California last month. Tomorrow's rematch tips off at 7.30. A slight chance of showers this morning between about 9 and 11, otherwise mostly cloudy skies and a bit of a breeze. The high temperature will be right around 50. Tonight, the skies clear and temperatures drop to a low near freezing. Tomorrow will start off sunny, then clouds move in, bringing a chance of rain in the afternoon. We'll have a high around 42. Right now, it's 43 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Charles Schwab with a variety of financial planning options from online tools to meeting with a financial consultant. Schwab works to make it easy to plan for tomorrow, today. More at schwab.com plan. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Many of the world's economic and political leaders are gathering at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland this week to discuss the globe's many challenges, which include soaring inflation, supply chain disruptions, and also the war in Ukraine. With us now to take the temperature of the global economy is Ken Rogoff. He's a professor of international economics at Harvard and a former chief economist for the International Monetary Fund. He's joining us now from Davos. Uh, Ken, you're there. Uh, How do all the bigwigs there feel about the world's economy right now? Well, you know, surprisingly, despite all the list of things you said, they're the at least the CEOs, there are a lot of them here, feel better than I feel about the world economy. Uh, but, you know, maybe they don't see what's coming around the corner is all I can say. Have they indicated why they would feel so good about it? I, th- I think part of it is China was in lockdown, like 10% of the population's been in lockdown at any one point the last few years. And everyone else who's not in lockdown is afraid they're in lockdown. So they don't go out shopping. They don't go out buying stuff. Chinese tourists of all over the world there, they haven't been going. So this idea that China's back, whether it is or not, I think I think that's the single thing that has them the most excited. <laughs> I don't know why they're not more worried about the war in the Ukraine. So why are you not as excited as them? Well, I mean, I think it's a few things. One is, I am more worried about the war in Ukraine. I was with the Ukrainian parliamentarians this morning and, you know, uh, talking about the, you know, the, the problems and the uncertainties. And I don't know what's around the corner there. But then on the economic side, interest rates have been going up. They've been going up a lot. We haven't seen it in many decades. And you don't feel the pain right away. And, and so I think there's worse to come. I hope I hope they're right, but my gut instinct is, you know, it's still a pretty 2023 is possibly going to be the worst year we've had besides 2008 and, you know, the pandemic. You're a bit of a bummer, Ken. I was about to say, I mean, that is a, a bleak prediction for the upcoming year. Yeah. I mean, there's bad years and there's bad years. The pandemic was just horrible and the global financial crisis is horrible. With luck, this will be sort of a very mediocre year where inflation's still too high, you know, growth isn't as good as we'd like. But I, on the bright side, I will say uh, in the United States, in particular, jobs have still been strong. Uh, productivity might not be strong, so we're not like making as much as we'd like, but it's definitely not all bad at the moment, not at all. The question is what lies around the corner. And there, there are just a lot of risks. And a, let's go back to Russia and the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I, I Maybe I'm, you know, too 
pessimistic, but I don't see an end game. And so it worries me that there are more shocks to come. That That's the big thing, that and the pandemic. Considering how you know, the, the war in Ukraine has been such a big part of why the economy, the world economy is the way it is, if you don't see an end game, um, yeah, I could see why their 2023 would not seem so great. It's so hard to know in a situation like this. But again, you know, we're, when we're coming out of this pandemic, which we haven't seen in 100 years, it's very hard to know what's around the corner. So I hope the CEOs here who are optimistic about what's going on, at least in the economy, prove to be right that that's a silver lining and what I'm still saying is probably a tough year. Ken Rogoff, Professor of International Economics at Harvard. Ken, thanks. Thank you. Interesting new data is out on the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP for short. It gave potentially forgivable government loans to small businesses during COVID, and the data shows the vast majority of those loans have been forgiven. Sasha Pfeiffer of NPR's investigations team is here to explain why that high forgiveness rate is troubling to many people. So, Sasha, people who got these loans were hoping they'd be forgiven. What's not to like about these new numbers, then? So there is no doubt that these loans were a lifesaver for many companies. And anyone who got PPP funding is probably relieved to hear that 92% of all the loans have been granted full or partial forgiveness so far. That's according to Small Business Administration data released this month. But a lot of that money went to businesses that didn't need it. Wealthy celebrities like Khloe Kardashian and Tom Brady, for example, they have companies that each got a PPP loan of about a million dollars entirely forgiven. Also, many businesses that thrived during COVID got their loans forgiven, like some manufacturing and construction firms. But was it legal for them to take that money? Yes, it was. To qualify for a loan, you just had to say you thought you needed it. And to get it forgiven, you did not have to prove the money was necessary. So that meant not only did people get loans they didn't truly need, it also attracted scam artists. Here's how University of Texas finance professor Sam Kruger puts it. The PPP program seems to have resulted in billions of dollars of fraudulent loans that have ultimately turned into grants. He estimates that $64 billion of the nearly $800 billion in loans show signs of fraud. Okay, so then why wasn't the government stricter with forgiveness? I mean, couldn't they have tried a little bit harder to weed out fraudsters or told businesses that prospered during COVID to actually just repay the money? I spent a lot of time asking those questions. The simple answer is the government wanted to get a lot of money out there very quickly, and it was willing to accept some waste. It also made forgiveness easy because that's what businesses lobbied Congress for. So auditors have manually reviewed only about 2% of the more than 11 million loans issued. And of that small number of loans reviewed, just 0.2% were denied forgiveness, minuscule. But I want to play something a former Treasury official under President Trump said to me. His name is Michael Falkender. Because PPP got up and running, we did not realize the catastrophe that could have taken place had we failed. What would breadlines during a pandemic have looked like? Do we want to know? I didn't. And so we were going to get that program up and running. He says the government prioritized speed over accuracy when giving out loans. And is it uh, just me, Sasha, or did he sound a little testy? He sounded testy to me, too. I would say he definitely was. And so was an SBA official in the Biden administration named Patrick Kelly. He told me it frustrates him when his agency is criticized over the program because it was just carrying out a law passed by Congress. And he pointed out that Congress voted repeatedly to issue more loans and make them increasingly easy to forgive, even when problems with the program became obvious. Here's Patrick Kelly. 
it's an easy sentiment to say, well, there goes the government again. Why didn't they do it right? But to me, it ignores the awesomeness of what did get done right. I've met many, 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 many more people who are thankful for their PPP loan. Okay, so he's focusing on the good the money did, but can any of the PPP loans that went astray be recovered? Well, prosecutors have up to 10 years to chase pandemic fraud, but no one will be asking rich people who didn't need a loan to please give it back. That money is theirs to keep. Meanwhile, PPP has contributed to the federal debt, which recently hit $31 trillion. Paying that down could eventually lead to higher taxes and fewer government services, even for future generations. That's really disappointing to business owners I interviewed, like Roy Thurston. He owns a Cape Cod art gallery that got $14,000 in PPP loans, all forgiven, and he said this. What bothers me is the people that took money that should have known better than to take money. It should have been for people who really needed it. And by the way, that 92% forgiveness rate, it's expected to keep getting higher as more forgiveness requests are processed. All right, that's NPR's Sasha Fiverr. Sasha, thanks. You're welcome. The Italian actress Gina Lollobrigida died in Rome at the age of 95 this week. She was nicknamed Lalalo, and she made dozens of movies in the United States and Europe after World War II. Here's NPR's Elizabeth Blair. Gina Lola Brigida melted the hearts of major stars in the 1950s and 60s. Humphrey Bogart, Frank Sinatra, Burt Lancaster. She was a voluptuous brunette with captivating brown eyes. In the 1968 comedy Buena Sera, Mrs. Campbell, Lola Brigida plays a woman who isn't sure which American soldier fathered her daughter during the war. Three fathers? Yes, three fathers. How could such a thing happen? You weren't here during the war. You don't know how it was that last summer. Before working in film, she studied painting and sculpture in Rome. She also took singing lessons and dreamt of being an opera singer. That didn't happen, but she did star as one in a movie and said it wasn't dubbed. Lola Brigida embraced her role as a symbol of Italy, but she didn't think of acting as her life, as she told NPR in 1973. When I'm work, I'm work. When I'm out of the work, I want to feel a, a normal person. Later in life, Lola Brigida returned to visual arts, painting and photography, and she ran for political office. She recently told the Italian press she was determined to stay creative. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. The patrons at a club in Ann Arbor, Michigan, aren't your average dance club crowd. Most of them are over 60, like Randy Tessier. We're a bunch of people that have been dancing in Ann Arbor for 50 years, and you know what? We got old. We can't help that. Tessier lines up the musical guests for a Friday night event named Ann Arbor Happy Hour, hosted by a nightclub called Live. Tessier is a writing teacher by day and a performer by night. Like Shaky Jake used to say, I'm on the move. You got to keep moving in this world, but you need to love and be loved. That keeps you alive. Alive is what this older crowd feels like on the dance floor, according to Maggie Levenstein at the University of Michigan. She works with data from the university's health and retirement study. We know that being engaged with others helps people to be happier as they age and to be healthier as they age. Obviously, these things aren't guarantees, and being healthier helps you to stay active. So these things reinforce one another. And it's good to be reminded of all this after the isolation of the pandemic. 
As people age, people are often isolated. Their kids are not there. They might not be going into the workplace in the same way. But they can try community building through dancing. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, there's long been a debate over the definition of swing music. Now, physicists say they have an answer. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Representative George Santos is accused of fabricating almost every aspect of his life. The more and more you lie, the less and less activity in the amygdala because you kind of get used to it and you don't feel bad anymore. Why do uncontrolled fabulists get that way? Go beyond the little lies we might all tell to cutting all ties with the truth. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A slight chance of showers this morning, otherwise overcast with a high in the low 50s. It'll also be a bit windy. Tonight's skies clear and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy with a high in the low 40s and a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston. Today on WBUR's daily podcast, The Common brings us the latest on the fatal police shooting of Arif Saeed Faisal in Cambridge. His death has the community demanding answers about how local law enforcement engages with people in mental distress. Learn more on The Common, hosted by Daryl C. Murphy. It's Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paychex, the Paychex team of professionals and compliance specialists work to help businesses automate all HR functions into one platform so that they can instead focus on their business and their employees. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Now, a mystery about music. Specifically about jazz. What is this thing called swing? What is this thing called swing? In 1939, Louis Armstrong asked a question that musicians still debate. What creates the swing feel in jazz? Now, physicists think they've got an answer, and it all has to do with the subtle nuances in timing. As part of our science series, Finding Time, NPR's Maria Godoy has a story. Don't mean a thing. Do I 
As Ella Fitzgerald and many others have sung, swing has long been considered an essential component of jazz. It's hard to put into words, but you might describe swing as a rhythmic phenomenon. Propulsive, groovy feeling created when performers are playing off each other in a way that makes you just want to move the music. Swing is a feel. There's a certain language. There's a certain inflection of rhythm. Christian McBride is a Grammy-winning jazz bassist, music educator, and host of NPR's Jazz Night in America. He says one defining component of swing is how eighth notes are played, instead of playing them straight. And that is like... In jazz, these notes are swung, meaning the downbeats or every other eighth note is played just a little longer, while the offbeat notes in between are shortened, creating a galloping rhythm like this. But jazz musicians know that technique alone can't explain swing. After all, even a computer can swing a note. A computer just ain't, it just ain't going to swing that hard, you know. You still don't get the real proper swing feel, which is a human feel, you know what I mean? That's McBride swinging with one of his bands. For me, I think you got to lock people in and say, okay, here's where the time is. Here's, here's where the rhythm is. And then everybody collectively, the musicians and the listeners can go, ah, yeah, that feels, that feels right, right? But how exactly are musicians playing off each other to create that swing feel? That's what Theo Geisel wanted to find out. I'm a professor uh, for theoretical physics. Geisel is director emeritus of the Max Planck Institute for Dynamics and Self-Organization in Göttingen, Germany. He studies the physics of synchronization. For example, how the billions of neurons in your brain coordinate with each other. He's also a passionate amateur saxophonist. He even has a band with other physicists. They play at conferences. Over the years, Geisel has wondered, How do musicians synchronize when they try to create swing in jazz? Now, you would think that musicians should synchronize as best they can when they play together. This is true, of course, to some extent. But since the 1980s, some scientists and music scholars have claimed that the swing feel is actually created by minute timing deviations between different instruments. To test this theory, Geisel and his colleagues took jazz recordings and used a computer to manipulate the timing of the soloist with respect to the rhythm section. We had experts, professional and semi-professional jazz musicians, rate how swinging these different versions of a tune were. In one version, for example, the piano soloist started at the exact same time as the rhythm section, like this. In another version, the soloist's downbeat started just the tiniest bit behind the rhythm section, but their offbeats were not delayed. That sounds like this. Didn't hear a difference between the clips? It's okay. Geisel says most people probably won't. 
After all, the timing delays we're talking about are minuscule, just 30 milliseconds or a fraction of the time it takes to blink an eye. Even so, the jazz musicians rating the clips picked up on it. They noticed the difference and they could feel the difference. They told us that they could hear a friction between the rhythm section and the soloist, but they were amazed that they could not identify what was going on exactly. Geisel says the expert musicians were seven and a half times more likely to rate the version with the downbeat delays as swinging harder. The researchers also analyzed over 450 recordings of jazz soloists, and they found that almost all of them were using tiny downbeat delays relative to the rhythm section. There were very few exceptions. Geisel says these tiny timing delays aren't random. They're systematic, though musicians are probably just doing it intuitively. So have scientists finally cracked the code for swing? Well, we have cracked a lot of it. But he says there are some mysteries of individual artistry that science might never be able to unravel. As for jazz musicians seeking the secret to swing, McBride says, study the greats. There's the spiritual answer and then there's the, you know, the scientific answer. You know, I think you just got to listen to people who did it well. Louis Armstrong, start there, you know. Uh, you actually want to go hear somebody who can swing their butt off? Nicholas Payton would not be a bad start. Bradford Marcellus would not be a bad start. He says, listen closely, and eventually, those mysteries of rhythm and timing will reveal themselves. Maria Godoy, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, what global leaders gathering at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland are saying about the forecast for inflation. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's heroic symphony this Thursday and Sunday at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handelandhaydn.org. Malcolm Jamal Warner is well known for his TV roles, including the iconic Theo Huxtable. But he's also a musician whose latest spoken word album is up for a Grammy. I've learned to discern who cannot accept all of me. I read the room before I speak because I find that folks flee from honesty like we retreat from love. Warner on his career in the spotlight and behind the mic on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's interior minister and a top deputy were among 16 people killed today in a helicopter crash. It went down outside Kyiv. It went down near a school building, sparking a fire. Children are among the dead. 
Ukrainian officials have not linked the crash to any fighting with Russian forces. The Pentagon's top general was in Poland yesterday for his first face-to-face talks with his Ukrainian counterpart. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, met for a couple of hours with Ukraine's chief military officer, General Valery Zaluzhny. They met at an undisclosed location in southeastern Poland along its border with Ukraine. The two had spoken frequently about the war and Ukraine's military needs over the past year, but had never met in person. The meeting comes amid Ukraine's pleas for heavy artillery from several nations. Large demonstrations are expected in France tomorrow to protest plans by the government to raise the country's retirement age from 62 to 64. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley is in Paris. The usually splintered left has come together to oppose the pension reform. Public sector workers are threatening to shake the walls of the Elysee, that's the home of the French president, when they walk off the job and into the streets tomorrow. Many schools will be closed and train service and public transport will be severely disrupted. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Massachusetts's top law enforcement official will be sworn into office today. Andrea Campbell becomes the 45th state attorney general and the first black woman elected to the post. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The 40-year-old Campbell has often said she has the right combination of professional and personal experience to be AG. Campbell attended Princeton University and UCLA Law School and is a former Boston City Councilor and worked as Deputy Legal Counsel under former Governor Deval Patrick. Campbell grew up in Boston, much of the time with relatives or in foster care. She met her father when she was eight years old as he was sentenced to prison when she was an infant. Her mother died in a car accident on the way to visit him in prison. Both of her brothers were involved in the criminal legal system. Campbell campaigned on a promise to reform that system and to help expand economic opportunities. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. A town in New Hampshire is mourning the loss of a teenager who died while skiing on Monday. Gunstock Mountain says the 15-year-old skied off a trail and hit trees and rocks. The high school the girl attended in Guilford says counseling is available for students. Cambridge-based Moderna says its vaccine against the respiratory illness RSV is 84 percent effective in older adults. Moderna is racing against a handful of other drug makers to get its shot to market. Right now, there is no RSV vaccine for adults. Moderna says trial participants report the jab packs mostly mild side effects like headaches. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. The Celtics are off tonight, but the Bruins are hitting the ice in New York. The Bees will skate with the Islanders beginning at 7.30. And your forecast cloudy with a high of 51 today. There's a slight chance of showers this morning, and it'll probably be windy all day. Clearing a bit tonight as we fall to a low around 33. Tomorrow cloudy and cooler with a high of only 42, a chance of rain in the afternoon. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston at 8.34. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. Here's one sign of how quickly China changed its approach to family planning. Less than a decade ago, China was still banning most couples from having more than one child. The one-child policy aimed to restrain the growth of a nation with 1.4 billion people. Now, as the population starts to decline, state-owned media reports some Chinese cities are paying people to have more children. Yuan Zhou has followed this change. She is assistant professor of sociology and Chinese studies at the University of Michigan. Good morning. Good morning. What role did the one-child policy play in this population decline that we're now seeing? China's one-child policy came at a time when fertility has already been declining for over a decade. Mm. And China's population size has always been as much a demographic issue as it's a political issue. China's one-child policy was based on pseudo-scientific demographic projections that at the time when China was coming out of the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese leadership thought restricting one child to every married sector heterosexual couple would produce or would design a population size that is most optimal for China's economic development. Yeah, because you have a problem if you have too many older people and not enough younger people who are still working, you end up with a massive demographic cliff, as they say. Yes, exactly. And China's past development of the last several decades has been reliant on a population that's often rural, young, and male. And these individuals have to navigate often a murky landscape of citizenship rights and labor rights. The experts for many years in the latter years of this one-child policy wondered, why is China doing this? This is not going to work in the long run, and people can look at the numbers and see that there's going to be a problem soon. But they persisted until very recent times with this one-child policy. You said they were depending on pseudo-scientific studies. Did the Communist Party really have in their head that this was going to work? They thought at the time a lot of um, the demographic projections with the leadership was very much based on doomsday writings about population explosion. And they thought by limiting birth to one child per married heterosexual couples, it will spur China's economic development. Because large population size has not always been viewed as a blessing, yeah. but sometimes a curse too by the Chinese leadership. I suppose we should note what really happened here, that aside from the policy, there's the reality of a country getting richer. And when a country gets richer and people's lives lives change and they urbanize, people tend to have fewer children anyway. Exactly. That has been the consensus that had there not been the one-child policy, given the social economic development, population or fertility would have declined. So really um, having this one-child policy that increased or, or limits women's bodily autonomy and reproductive rights to such extreme is a really necessary that has always been a question. Now they're starting to pay people in some places to have extra children, to have a third child in some families. That hasn't worked very well in other countries when it's been tried, though. And it has not worked very well in China either. For Chinese individuals, for young Chinese people, having children contains a multitude of calculations. It often has to do with their sense of self, their what an ideal life and what an ideal family is to them. That went beyond simply 
appropriate monetary incentives. So if the population is just going to go down, what happens to things like China's massive infrastructure or China's massive real estate development when there just aren't as many people to use those things? For the Chinese leadership and for the Chinese labor market, they really have to contend with this dramatic shift in population composition. And it has to contend with this shift in how older individuals, how women workers are treated. And it has to contain with the shift about what China's population looks like and the imaginary of what it means to be Chinese nowadays. Yuan Zhou is at the University of Michigan. Thanks for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You could think of this as the winter of respiratory viruses. Yep, you name it, someone's caught it. RSV, flu, COVID, they're all spreading fast this season, and some people come down with all three at the same time. So what does that look like and who's most at risk? A new study from the CDC is out today. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is here. Rob, good morning. Morning, Steve. Just to be clear on the science here, can people be sick with more than one virus at the same time? Yes, it definitely can happen. There's plenty of evidence of people testing positive for, say, COVID in the flu or flu and RSV. Mm. I talked about this with Dr. Tina Tan, an infectious disease specialist at Northwestern University. Absolutely. You can catch more than one virus at the same time. We've had kids that have actually had three different viruses. Some of them come in with RSV. They've also had influenza and enterovirus. There have been other kids who have presented with COVID and influenza. And so you can get more than one virus at the same time. And you know, Steve, especially this year, which is so unusual because so many viruses have been surging simultaneously. Now, you know, it's unclear just how often this happens because most of the testing for this sort of thing is done on hospitalized patients who probably aren't representative of the general public. But some studies have found co-infections in up to 20% of those patients. Wow. Um, Are some people more vulnerable than others to this co-infection? Yes, kids. Kids appear to be far more likely to get more than one bug on top of the other, especially very young kids. Here's Amanda Jamison, who studies respiratory viruses at Brown University. It could be just because they're constantly being exposed to respiratory infections, but it could also be that their immune systems just haven't built up the immunity that older people have. And, you know, whatever the reason, lots of studies have found that kids are much more likely to get these so-called co-infections than older people. That said, co-infections can occur at any age, you know, and especially older people and others with weaker immune systems. If you get more than one virus, does that make you sicker? You know, it doesn't always, but there is growing evidence that it can. In fact, a new CDC study out today finds that's the case. The study involving more than 4,000 hospitalized kids found those who had COVID plus another virus, such as, you know, a cold virus, were significantly more likely to require oxygen Mm. to help them breathe and to end up requiring intensive care. Here's Dr. Nicholas Agathis from the CDC, who led the study of what he calls co-detections. We found that children under five had about twice the odds of having severe illness when they had a co-detection compared to when they just had SARS-CoV-2 infection. And the children under two who had RSV were twice as likely to have severe illness compared to children who just had COVID and not RSV also. 
Now, the reason for that isn't entirely clear either, but it could be because multiple infections cause more inflammation in the body and because different respiratory viruses damage the lungs in different ways. Oh, yeah. Um, so what can people do about this? So here I'm going to sound like a broken record. Get vaccinated against both COVID and the flu. Wash your hands a lot. Wear a mask in crowded, poorly ventilated places, especially around sick people. Okay, NPR health correspondent Rob Stein, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, WBUR education reporter Max Larkin explains why Boston's proposed move to an elected school committee has stalled. In your forecast, overcast, breezy, and near 50 today. There's a slight chance of showers later this morning. Mostly clear tonight with a low around freezing. Tomorrow, overcast again with a high only in the low 40s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston. Now, in business news, the Boston Globe is planning to lay off workers at its print facility in Taunton. That's after the site lost its contract to print local copies of the New York Times. A source familiar with the negotiations tells the Boston Business Journal 30 people will be laid off. Harvard Medical School says it will no longer participate in the annual Best Medical Schools ranking from the U.S. News and World Report. The school's dean says the rankings influence colleges to make decisions that will boost their standing with the media company instead of doing what's best for students. The move follows Harvard and Yale Law School's decision to pull out from the rankings last year. It's 843. Support for WBUR's Business Report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save. Energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's been just over a year since 79% of voters in Boston supported changing the governing body of Boston schools from one whose members are appointed by the mayor to one with elected members. But now, in a busy year for city schools, Mayor Michelle Wu seems resistant to that change. So city councilors have refiled a petition to return to having elected school committee members, setting the stage for a potential impasse. WBUR's Max Larkin is here to explain more. Hi, Max. Hi, Rupa. Okay, let's back up to that 2021 referendum. What did it do? Yeah, it was kind of a litmus test, a way of sort of taking voter interest in the idea. So actually implementing elected school committees would change Boston's charter with a so-called home rule petition, which requires approval from the state legislature and the governor. So voters had their say and they were emphatic. They wanted a return to an elected school committee that every other municipality in the state has and that Boston had until 1992. As head of Boston's NAACP, Tanisha Sullivan helped organize that vote and she describes the scope of the victory. This was every neighborhood across the city of Boston said, yes, (laughs) we want an elected school committee. We want more direct accountability to families and to students. I do think it's important to listen to the people and the people have clearly spoken. Another organizer, Rupa, joked that this is just about the only thing Boston can agree on. (laughs) So how was it supposed to play out from that point? 
Yeah, so you have this draft home rule petition, which was filed by city councilors Ricardo Arroyo and Julia Mejia, and it imagined a gradual transition to elected seats as members' terms started to expire, and that would start last fall. So that didn't happen. They've now refiled that petition, as you mentioned, and will be updating it and debating it over the next month. Then it would go on to the mayor and then with her signature up Tremont Street to Beacon Hill to get approval from both houses of the legislature and the governor. The trouble is we don't know when or if Mayor Wu will sign it. And since the referendum was non-binding, she doesn't have to, as Ricardo Arroyo explained to me. You know, that's the power of being the mayor. She has the ability to sign it or not. I don't think this is an issue that's just going to go away. I think she will have to address the council and the public on it at some point. So Arroyo says they're doing what they can now, trying to get a big majority before a city council vote to be held in the next few months. And advocates say they'll be trying to build support in the state house as well as trying to put pressure on Mayor Wu. Those advocates, what's their argument for an elected committee? Why is it so important to them? I think their feeling is that the current system effectively robs Boston families of a directive voice in the schools. Now, with committee members appointed by the mayor, it's pretty clear who they answer to. And they usually vote unanimously in favor of whatever proposal is before them, like the mask mandate back in 2020 or the changes to exam school admissions in 2021. So pro-election advocates acknowledge that an elected committee would come with complications like campaign fundraising, possible corruption, people using it as a stepping stone to higher office. But I think they say it'd be worth it to have accountable, independent, representative leaders making policy in the schools. So what are the signs that Wu isn't ready to budge? Well, first, she just reappointed two committee members to four-year terms, the chair, Jerry Robinson and Kwok Tran. And then the mayor issued a statement saying, quote, in the year ahead, she is determined to keep the momentum going to reform special education, invest in teaching and learning, and rebuild our school facilities. Reading between the lines there, it seems to be saying it's not a great time for what could be a difficult reorganization of school governance. Hmm. I mean, does Wu have a point that this is just bad timing to start such a big change? Well, I think it's certainly true that there's a lot to do and a lot of scrutiny on BPS right now. State education officials put the district on what they call a strategic improvement plan last June, which calls for the district to overhaul its approach to special education, to better serve its English learners, to make school buses run on time and more. And the school's just got a new superintendent, Mary Skipper, this last fall. The school committee also votes to choose the superintendent. They're starting to contemplate her first 100 days in office, her first billion dollar budget. And so all of that might make this time awkward. But then given the size of this school district, maybe there would never be a good time. So what happens next? Well, like I said, the petition will go to a vote before the city council in the coming weeks. And if it passes, and that's what we expect, it will go on to Wu's desk. Now, Ricardo Arroyo and advocates say they don't know what she'll do, but that they intend to keep up the advocacy, keep up the pressure before and after the vote to make sure that that lopsided win at the ballot box bears fruit and hopefully sometime soon. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me. That was WBUR education reporter Max Larkin. This is 90.9 WBOR. Coming up, a new analysis from Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies sheds light on how and when millennials are starting their own homes. Coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Scott Tong is on the line to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Scott. 
Hi, Rupa. Good morning from Washington. Uh, in Search of Paradise, one of the world's most celebrated travel writers and authors, Pico Iyer, has a new book and he talks to us about it. He flies to some of the most spiritual places in the world, Sri Lanka, Jerusalem, a holy shrine in Iran, a holy city in India. And along the way, he shares these cross-culture observations he has. And even though he's not a member of an organized religion, Pico Iyer talks about catching spiritual passion on his travels. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a great, it's great to hear from him. We're also going to talk about drug addiction and new links to heart disease, life-threatening heart disease. New evidence that the rich are indeed getting richer. We're talking about the wealth gap. We'll have an update on Kevin McCarthy's House of Representatives and how the Republican Party is starting to govern and updates from the helicopter crash in Ukraine. Mm, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Scott. Okay. Thanks. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Anglin Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me. Car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. A slight chance of rain this morning, otherwise cloudy, windy, and in the upper 40s. Mostly clear tonight in the low 30s. Cloudy tomorrow in the low 40s with a chance of rain in the afternoon. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston at 851. Maybe don't get too comfortable with those lower gas prices. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Global demand for oil will reach a new record this year. That's according to the latest assessment from the International Energy Agency. Just a couple months ago, its forecast for global demand predicted no new records. So, what happened? One word, China. Marketplace's Nova Safos here with more. Good morning, Nova. Good morning, Sabri. So China, as we know, scrapped its zero COVID policy. It's reopening to the world. The IEA is predicting that that's enough to push oil consumption to new heights? So yes, and it doesn't take much to get us there, frankly, because we weren't that far off. A couple of months ago, the IEA's forecast said that 2023 will bring global oil demand growth of 1.6 million barrels per day. Now it is saying that demand will increase by 1.9 million barrels per day. A very small difference in the grand scheme of things, but it's enough, Sabri, to get us to a new record for global oil demand. So what does this mean for oil prices and, by extension, what people will be paying for gas uh, this year? Right. I mean, it could go up, but it's really tricky to predict. And one of the reasons is that IEA is not expecting oil demand to really pick up until the second half of this year. And frankly, a lot can happen right between now and then. Also, while demand is growing slowly, that allows a buildup of inventories, which could help with supply down the line. And that could keep prices from going up too much. And finally, we don't know what's going to happen with Russia. Right now, the IEA says Russia is selling its oil at a huge discount, about half off the benchmark price. That's well below the $60 a barrel price cap that the U.S. and its allies have implemented. So say demand increases and oil prices rise, Sabri, that could make Russian oil even more attractive 
keeping up supplies to countries such as China and India, and that could, again, affect prices. All right. Marketplace is Nova Sappho. Thank you so much. Thank you. For a while, the Bank of Japan was one of the few major central banks in the world to avoid raising interest rates until last month when it gave, up and gave in and raised a cap on long-term rates. They're still very low compared to elsewhere in the world, just half a percent. And there's word today Japan is going to keep things that way, at least for now. It's not going to raise rates further, despite increasing inflation in that country. Here's the BBC's Mariko Oi. It was, I have to say, one of the most highly anticipated BOJ meetings. And I'm usually the only geek who's like gets really excited about it. There was a lot of speculation about what they might do. Uh, of course, they did absolutely nothing. The Japanese central bank governor, uh, Haruhiko Kuroda, doesn't think that raising interest rates would really help, or rather, it would really hurt the Japanese economy. That is Mariko Oi with our editorial partners at the BBC. Inflation in Japan is at the highest level in 40 years, but it is still way lower than what we're seeing in the U.S. For context, Japan's inflation rate in December was 3.8% compared with the U.S.'s 6.5%. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down less than a tenth of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ futures are up around a two-tenths of a percent. Dow future is down less than a tenth of a percent, just 13 points. And the 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.428%. We just got word that consumers pulled back on spending at the end of 2022. Retail sales fell 1.1% in December as consumers faced higher interest rates and inflation. People spent less on vehicles and gasoline. They also cut back on furniture. Meanwhile, prices at the wholesale level fell in December, half a percent. Some good news on inflation there. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where researchers seek new breakthroughs inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. DanaFarber.org slash stories. Back in 2016, for the first time since the 40s, the majority of people aged 18 to 34 were still living with their parents. But since then, some things have changed. More millennials are starting homes. The number of households headed by 25 to 34-year-olds grew by 300,000 households per year from 2016 to 2021. That's according to new analysis from Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. That's compared to 45,000 per year in the first half of the 2010s. Marketplace's Matt Levin reports. Darian Pham is a 26-year-old California homeowner, which these days is kind of like saying you're a 26-year-old CEO or astronaut or something. It's impressive, but Pham doesn't lead with it when he goes on dates. Especially my, my age range or just my generation, like, I don't know, being a homeowner is kind of like a really hard thing to do. And uh, I don't think any of us need a reminder of how hard it is. Pham spent most of his adult life living with his parents in the pricey San Francisco Bay Area. It just didn't make financial sense to rent. After saving up a bit and securing a VA loan in fall 2020, he pounced on a three-bed, one-bath house in much cheaper Sacramento. I think it's just like the logical step, right? Like, I love my parents, but it's time to kind of level up and move out. You can only live in your parents' basement for so long before people decide they need their own space. Jenny Schutz is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And so the question was just, when are people going to feel financially comfortable that we start to see them move out and take up their own space? 
She says early on in the pandemic, lots of young adults moved back in with their parents during lockdowns. But since then, they've increasingly struck out on their own. That's a trend that really began a few years before COVID when the labor market started heating up. So we had a very long period coming out of the Great Recession when young adults really just didn't have jobs that would support an independent lifestyle. As the economy got better, more of them were forming independent households and buying. Ironically, that glut of young adults forming new households have sent home prices and apartment rents soaring in recent years. Gen Z, those born after 1997, are facing those same high housing costs millennials faced. But they've started their careers in a great labor market that now allows many jobs to be done remotely. Sociologist Jessica Hardy at Hunter College in New York says being untethered from an office could encourage Gen Z to stay with mom and dad longer, or it could make it easier to move out to cheaper housing markets. Either cities or just towns that are idyllic in some way that aren't necessarily an economic draw. Hardy says a lot will depend on whether we enter a severe recession soon. If so, that living in the basement trope could hit Gen Z too. Should make for some good TikToks though. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's going to be warmer today with temperatures rising to around 50, but it'll also be windy and cloudy. And there's a slight chance of rain this morning. Clearing tonight as temperatures fall to the low 30s, cloudy tomorrow in the low 40s with a chance of rain in the afternoon. Rain and snow expected on Friday. It'll be in the upper 30s. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. Representative George Santos is accused of fabricating almost every aspect of his life. The more and more you lie, the less and less activity in the amygdala because you kind of get used to it and you don't feel bad anymore. Why do uncontrolled fabulists get that way? Go beyond the little lies we might all tell to cutting all ties with the truth. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.